0: This week's Institute of Ideas podcast, we'll hear some of the highlights from the recent series of debates the Institute ran at the City of London Festival. Audio recordings of the full debates will be available on our website
1: soon. Here's the Institute's Associate Director, Dave Bowne. Over the past three weeks, the Institute of Ideas have been working in partnership with the City of London Festival to produce a series of debates entitled Justice, Money, Power. The series, convened by me, David Bowden, saw nine discussions take place at selected venues around the city, exploring many of the key issues confronting a global international hub in the wake of the general election and amidst growing uncertainty around the global economy and the future of the Eurozone. On June 25th, we took on a live political discussion directly confronting the city, with a debate on whether London's nighttime economy was being regulated out of existence The panel for Fight for Your Right to Party featured Alan Miller from the newly formed Nighttime Industries Association.
2: The first thing I want to say is in the uh, recent election, uh, no one seems to talk about economic growth much. It was interesting. But actually, I think that the nighttime economy has been the one area where in Britain and the UK where there's been really tremendous economic growth. Uh, Not just economic growth, but also cultural growth. It was interesting to me that many years ago, the Labour Party, as it happens, decided to do a party political broadcast inside the Vibe Bar at the old Truman Brewery. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, you know, it was a bit naff, that whole cool Britannia, associating yourself with music and fashion and the night time. But actually, there was something that was really interesting about that, which is it was a recognition of the value. There was something new in Britain that was happening, and it was happening uh, not in shipbuilding and coal, but in this new arena. And I do think that my experience of being in Britain in the last 25 years is the role that the night time and some dance culture and the fusion of these different elements has transformed it from being a place where the older police that I speak to used to call it Friday Fight Night, where there would be racism, where women might dance around handbags and guys used to have punch-ups, uh, to a place where now you've got 35 million uh, visitors, tourists coming here every year, not to see the House of Parliament necessarily, so to come and visit some of our nighttime activity, where you have young people of all different cultures mixing together, where you have gay and straight and, and all different ethnicities up and down the country. It's why uh, Liverpool's festival has become so successful there, generating £700 million per annum. It's reasons why everywhere from places like Bournemouth, uh, to Cardiff, a whole range of nighttime activity really creates and kickstarts not just economic activity but cultural exchange. Actually, it's one of the arenas where women can engage in an autonomous, free way uh, independently with their friends on an equal basis. And we've seen a remarkable shift that wasn't really to do with regulation but much more to do with the independent spirit of new people creating innovative spaces, uh, spearheaded by wanting to have something new, new types of bars and clubs, and the fusion of how food and festivals has all come about. And my own experience at the Old Truman Brewery was that uh, some of you may be familiar with it, it's been there for 300 years, but it was a place where it had severe economic problems, lots of unemployment, social exclusion, all the issues that are talked about as being problematic. Through the activity of the nighttime uh, anchoring there and bringing in creative uh, uh, companies, it helped transform that whole area, generating not just jobs, but a good news story, social capital, and then becoming a place that was internationally seen as a destination. Now, of course, uh, when you get an international destination in any area, if a place like Vauxhall or Peckham or uh, somewhere on Merseyside becomes popular, there may be some issues with that. You know, of course, if you go to Formula One racing and there's some people decide to do some feeding outside, that's a problem that needs to get handled. Uh, if you're at Lord's and a few people drink a lot and keel over, you might say that's stupid behaviour, but I'm not sure we should be saying Lord's should be closed down or penalised or be reviewed. The nighttime industry are held to a different standard where when things happen, which are generally very good, are very positive, they contribute lots in terms of employment, business rates, all the good news stories, and a few issues occur, then we're held accountable in a different way. Now, you know, it's good, everyone likes to talk about the evidence. There's some really interesting research recently in uh, Yara, in in, uh, southern Australia, just outside Melbourne. They did a cost-benefit analysis of the night time, because people like to say, show me the evidence. And the evidence in Yara is just one case study, you know, we're looking at different places around the UK and elsewhere, was that Pretty much there was a 3 to 1, sometimes 2.8 to 1 benefit in every area in terms of employment, uh, benefit costs in wages and value-added, very interestingly, 2.1 to 1, value-added. So I think there are very genuine concerns and I think we need to have a dialogue about that. And we have to be honest as well about what it means today because there is a different relationship with the state today with policing. Uh, They're in a difficult position and we want to talk to them about it. We want to say we understand You know, if you're having police stations closed and you've got less resources, we need to work out how to manage that. But that's a conversation. People talk about partnership, about joined-up thinking. But basically, what's happened up until very recently is bars and the nighttime industry, which then actually impacts all sorts of other things during the daytime, have been penalised and they've been curbed. I mean, you know, it was actually relief when Sir Bernard Hogan Howe said, in order to curb crime, we need to cut 50% of bars and nightclubs in London. Because then you were thinking, well, I'm not being schizophrenic and crazy, it's not just that they hate me, or something weird's happening. There's a declaration of intent and statement. Well, I know you might make some money, but, you know, look, crime and antisocial behaviour. But let's look at all the good news. The good news is, people are drinking less than ever before. 40% of young people actually say they're teetotal. Serious crime is radically reduced. Right? All of the public research is demonstrating that. That actually, 10 years ago, we were told people are going to be binge drinking, creating crime, this 24-hour culture. Actually, people just, in a more mature way, spread their drinking sensibly. We create a cultural capital in the night time that has implications and consequences, not just in the UK, but internationally. Not just music artists that go around the world, or the inspiration of fashion, but tech uh, companies. Uh, all of the different young people that come together are inspired. It's the, the new place where next cultural phenomena occur. And in terms of how we handle resources, we're talking about technical issues here, because it's always been the case, and this is what's new, and people aren't being honest about it, I think, generally outside, it's always been the case that the planning objectives have had to weigh up the interests of residents, the interests of business, and people that are visiting areas, and they've had to consider the mix, and weigh it up, and come up with sensible strategy and policies. That was always the case. You know, we've had 25 years of experience of doing things all around the country, from big festivals to small boutique events. You always have to consider those things. You have to do meetings with residents uh, and think those things through. But something new's happened. It's not just about, and you know, often we get this moment, it's a bit like, I'm not a racist, but... Or some of my best friends are black. I love the nighttime economy, it brings those of things, but... And then we hear certain things like vomit and urine. And, and actually, I want to get some proportion in this because... For the most part, what we see in most places is that people are behaving really well, they're often tweeting about drinks, they're enjoying their relationship in different ways, not like the Friday fight night of the past. And yes, there are some issues, and we need to work out how they're they're handled. But rather than saying we need to bring you to review straight away, or impose more and more conditions, or limit the business that you're doing, which is creating such enormous positive impacts in Britain, when, when much of the British economy is experiencing zero growth, this is the one dynamic area, this one sector that employs so many people, that creates so much benefit in Britain. Let's not penalise and curb it, because in the last two years just in London, 10 significant clubs have closed, and in the last five years, uh, that, uh, that's more like 20. Most of them are over 1,000 capacity. That's millions of people coming in and out of places, being employed. That cannot be reproduced. And I think when you talk about the impact in the area... I think it is really important to have a conversation about how that can handle it. And I think that the industry, the nighttime industry, is very up, about, very up for and always involved in having a conversation about mitigating impacts, offsetting them. But we need to have, dare I say it, a sober conversation about it. Because there's been a very shrill environment in which, often, in the media and by some uh, politicians and local councillors, nighttime was antisocial behaviour equals crime. And that is a real problem. When your starting position is that. Because I was just at Parliament yesterday, I had a conversation with someone who knows a great deal about all of this, and we agreed on serious crime being down, young people drinking less before, people being more responsible, all the public data. And then that person went on to say to me, yeah, but you know, when they're in the places and they're drinking and they go and do those things. And there's a script. And I think it's important to unpick that and say, look, it's time to have an honest conversation. Things like road cleaning, things like policing areas, thank you, things like policing areas... Uh, uh, and, and what can be done in the local area we're, part, we're stakeholders in those areas there's no one in the nighttime industry that has an interest in crime being there or any social behaviour we can work together with brilliant professional organisations if you take us out of the nighttime, out of the high street curb us, review us clip our wings you get a bit of the Detroit effect I'll leave you with this thought I would say, if you think about where you've had your best experiences, your most inspirational moments in life, where you've fallen in love, you might have fallen out of love, where you've met new friends, you've traded new experiences, you've seen something you've had that aha moment, I bet you that's in the night time. And what I would I I would really like to see is how we can have a more honest conversation about how we really work together. Not well, we're working together, but these are more conditions, and this is how we're reviewing you. If you don't do that, it's going to be over. And look at how we all can work together to make London and Britain far better. Thank you. Thank you.
1: On Tuesday 30th of June, in front of another sellout audience at Bishopsgate, we asked, are we heading for another crisis? With the economist Phil Mullen, chaired by the Institute's own Rob Lyons.
0: Um, well, I, I won't break the consensus, which seems to be to answer the question in the, in the affirmative. that Yes, a crisis is coming. I think that is the case. As um, uh, certainly as things stand at the moment... Um, and what Leslie and John said that they pinpointed some of the areas of tension in the world, whether it's bond markets and possibly you know the Eurozone crisis, and I tend to agree with John, Probably the Chinese issue is, is overstated. But rather than me join, join the, uh, the, the search for where the crisis may arise I want to rather uh, focus on what I think is the crucial underlying uh, factor which is driving us towards one. And that picks up on something that, that Leslie said, which is I think we have not in any way Learned the lessons from the last crisis, I think that 's the main problem which we have, and I think this is important because i don 't think there 's anything inevitable or preordained about being stuck in this cycle of crises or cycle of financial bubbles. Really, what it comes down to is it 's down to what we or society does in response to crisis or does not do which is what fixes us in what I think is this crisis-prone situation at at the moment. So, uh, and I think if we learn the wrong lessons or not learn the lessons, not approach the lessons, then, um, uh, as that uh, uh, old saying goes, those who cannot learn from history um, are doomed to repeat it. I think that's sort of very pertinent um, for this uh, discussion. Now, I think the main lesson which is being ignored is that historically, uh, big financial crises are generally expressive of something which is much more deep underlying sort of economic problems. Uh, and I think it's certainly the case that 2008 is no exception to that general rule. You have a big crisis, and it reflects something much deeper than just what you see on the surface. And I think the big problem in not learning lessons is that uh, this 2007, 2008, 2009 crash is still, I think, predominantly interpreted very narrowly as a crisis of finance as a consequence of failures within the financial markets. Uh, And instead, I think it should have been recognized as a wake-up call that there is something much more uh, profound going on, and that there has been, for a long time, an inability, in the case of Britain and every other really advanced economy, to be able to consistently grow, to be able to consistently produce enough new value in order uh, to be able to live comfortably. Now, that decay in productive capacity, which I think underlies one of John points, which is this continuing balanced payments deficit, our inability to pay our way in the world, uh, in Britain that's an extreme case. But I think that decay in productive capacity uh, is not an obscure thing. To use the old saying, it's hidden in plain view. Many of those big international organisations that uh, Leslie's referred to, the Bank of International Settlements, the OECD, the IMF, have drawn attention increasingly over the last couple of years Um, uh, to the fact that long time ago, long, long before 2007-2008, there has been a problem of a lack of business investment, and as a result, uh, 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 a productivity growth has been been getting increasingly sluggish. And that's been the case across America, across Europe, uh, and not least in the case of Britain. Uh, There are those who say, we are now in a situation of secular stagnation. Uh, things are so bad that they will say that living standards are not just going to rise, they're going to stay flat, and for some people uh, in society, they're actually going to be going and have been going backwards. Now I think it's this productivity slowdown which explains uh, balance of payments uh, deficits, which John talks about, but it ex- and it explains too that our uh, increasing dependence on-, on borrowing and debt, which has enabled us as businesses and as individuals to keep going at a time we are not producing enough to be able to live through what uh, we are creating. So that debt explosion, that debt expansion, which took off from the late 70s, but increasingly uh, from the late 1980s fairly steadily, for which everyone was borrowing more and more, and John's right to say it was predominantly the private sector at that stage, not the the public sector. It is that which allowed us to continue to spend more than we earned, and which artificially flattered us into thinking that the 1990s things were really okay, and the first half of the 2000s things were okay. But really, it was that debt bubble which, when it burst, is what uh, created that financial crash uh, of 2008. So the vital point, I think, which has not been learned, is that the underlying cause of our economic malaise today is in those production problems that well preceded 2008. However, the situation has been that we've not recognised that, and I don't think we've even begun to fix that problem within production. Instead, we've continued to see 2008 as a financial crisis only, and we've tended to see it through sort of finance-tinted glasses, in a way. We see everything in a financial problem rather than as a, 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 as a production problem. It's like the reverse of that, uh, the law of the instrument. You know the thing where you say that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, in this case, it's a situation everything is perceived as a financial nail, and so the conclusion you draw is that all you need is some sort of financial hammer in order to set things right. And that therefore misses the whole point that there's a whole range of problems there which can't be fixed with a financial hammer. The problems of productivity and that failure of business to invest. Just to end then with three instances or three illustrations of, of how that failure to heed that lesson is, uh, I think, set us on the road to, uh, to the next crisis. Firstly, in a... Complete break with the past. I think governments do need to uh, take a, a lead in economic restructuring because the problems holding back production won't fix themselves. I think The market isn't going to fix this. But the failure of governments to do that so far means that at some point that powder keg of low productivity uh, under there is going to explode just as it's potentially exploding in Greece at the moment, but it could well explode in Britain as well. Unpredictable. I agree with Leslie and John, we can't predict where this is going to be, but as long as you have that problem of low productivity, not enough value being created, that will explode at some time in some place. Uh, a, a return of crisis will not be avoided. Secondly, one of the worst downsides, I think, of the main policy focus being limited to the financial markets to seeing things through these finance-tinted glasses uh, is that trying to fix them through bank reforms, through more financial regulation and so on, all that has done, or one of the worst things that it done, is to create a false sense of security among certain people, among certain people in the establishment, which has added that official complacency about things are really on the mend. This idea, that the idea, oh, growth was three percent, things are really okay in Britain. But the reality is that underneath that, uh, those financial reforms, um, which have been sort of treating the symptoms of the problem, have been uh, very ineffective. Uh, there's always a way around regulatory constraints. If that's what's necessary. It's like that game, uh, whack-a-mole. You know, the, the game where you hit a mole here and it pops up there. That's what financial instability is like. You hit down on the banks here, thinking you're controlling things, and up pops something else. As Leslie's very well explained, in the way that the, the, the focus, the locus of financial instability, has shifted from the banks now into the bond markets, uh, as actually a, a, a consequence of one of the regulatory fixes which was tried up to 2008. Thirdly, given that uh, the responsibility for the lacklustre recovery is primarily attributed to the repercussions of the credit crunch, policy to revive economic uh, growth has been focused on compensating for uh, this disruption uh, and trying to restore normal credit conditions. Uh, And there we allude to, or we we draw attention to what Leslie mentioned and I think John mentioned too, this uh, pumping out of liquidity into the economies through the easy money policies, the low interest rate policies of the central banks. The problem is, if you haven't fixed, as they haven't, the supply side problems which are holding back businesses from investing, then all that liquidity has gone into other areas, and two particularly problematic ones Firstly, it's gone into uh, maintaining uh, weaker, old, uh, less productive businesses, what I call zombie businesses, and that's helping to congest the whole system, it's actually blunting the creative destruction which is necessary in order to allow new investment and innovation to take place. So in an ironic way, easy money policies, which are supposed to be stimulating investment, are actually creating blocks to investment and holding back productivity. And secondly, that liquidity also has gone into uh, the financial assets, the financial bubbles, whether it's in uh, uh, assets in this country or emerging market corporate bonds is another area which have really accelerated in, in, in price. So it creates the basis for the next uh, round of financial instability. Now, I began with one quotation about history, I'll end with the more cynical version, which is that history repeats itself because we weren't listening the first time. Um, and I think that's unfortunately the case. We weren't listening to the noises which were coming out of 2008 and 9. And I think it's long past due. That we need to you know, open our ears, open our eyes, but most importantly, I think open our minds to recognise there are much deeper problems going on than in the financial world. The problems are in production, and until we begin to fix those, then those uh, financial and other types of crises are bound to recur in one form or another.
1: Okay, thanks, Phil. Wednesday 1st of July, we were on the 6th floor of a skyscraper overlooking City Hall, as London and partners hosted a lively debate entitled Skyscrapers and Slums Urban Inequality in London In the midst of a heatwave this robust debate featured the architect Alistair Donald Yeah, well... I agree with Matthew
3: that there's a generalised sense that we're not addressing things. I think in London there is that generalised sense, but I disagree that it's impossible to say anything valid and coherent because, I, you know, I, I think there is, there is that possibility. And I think Seb and, and Kishwa have, have done the quite detailed thing, the policy thing and, you know, uh, the, the, the small tweaks, as it were, that you might undertake. But, I, you know, I, I, I think there's something more fundamental, which is simply that we need to start building things. You know, I, I think that is the, the, the fundamental problem of, of, of the last few years, is we don't build nearly enough, we don't develop nearly enough. And in the debate that we have about this, we kind of seem to, to go around the edges and never really have a serious enough debate about how to resolve it. I, I don't know if anybody noticed just before the anti-austerity march uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a tweet from a, a Westminster councillor, Conservative councillor called Richard Holloway, Uh, it was quite interesting, just his his tweet and the reaction to it kind of gave a sense of the failed seriousness of the the debate just now. He tweeted Dear hashtag end austerity now you go ahead and wave your banners the grown-ups will get on with running the country. So he was having a go at the the anti-austerity marches and of course the the sad reality is that uh, the mainstream the people in charge haven't really been having a very grown-up debate I think over over the last uh, few years about what the problems are. And I think you know, in that, in, in that respect, if you look at the kind of mainstream and what's been happening, I don't, I don't think there's a lot of difference, really, between uh, the Conservatives and, you know, recent partners, uh, Lib Dems, and the, the new Labour years. Every single year since 1997, uh, the government of the day has failed to meet the annual housing target, but sometimes by as much as 100,000 shortfall in homes. Which is a hell, hell of a amount. That's that's you know we're we're just basically not building enough. You know we can talk about uh, the kind of rich investors that that Generation Rent uh, talk about taking all the, the the homes, the land banking, and the planning failures, the failure to build in the right tenancies or the right type of affordable homes or whatever. But ultimately, when it gets down to it, you know I I think the simple thing is that we the shortages today and the high prices are, are a result of the fact that uh, if you compare building today with, say, the late 1960s, where we knocked out 400,000 homes in a year. Today, it's somewhere around about 140,000. So there's a huge shortfall in terms of what we build. And, you know, that... that it wasn't much better during the new labour years, uh, even during uh, from 1997 to 2010. Those years, there was an average of 30,000 homes less built even, when, even than when Thatcher was in, in charge. So we've, we've been on a downward slope for the best part of 30, 30 or 40 years. and. There's been a lot of tinkering around the edges, I think. Uh, there's been right to buy and the recent, you know, the recent threat to extend those measures, but really that doesn't deliver new homes, it just changes the ownership model. There's been key worker homes and shared ownership and affordable homes and planning gain and, again, lots of tinkering. And, you know, and I, I think a real illustration of the way that the whole issue of housing is, has become more or less driven by managerialism and technical change rather than a political vision of how cities might be, how how we might build the housing of the future. You know, it's something akin to the New Towns programme of, of the post second war period world war period. And <coughs> it's always been the case that it's been controls and regulations of house building there's nothing new there but i think the you know the switch in the late 1990s to compact cities and the brownfield mo- model of development which is all, you know, obviously posed very positively as the rebirth of urbanism but it really did signal the dominance the the emergence of risk aversion as as a kind of operating uh, mode over thinking big and trying to do th- new things trying to Expand, have a more expansive approach to, to building. We seem to be put in a situation where the you know the claimed environmental limits, the, the disputed as well environmental limits, take precedence over building the homes that we know we need to build. And I think, you know, there's a tension there, obviously, that we never seem to have overcome for the past 20 years. And so when you get things like uh, people writing about the housing crisis, an interesting article on the BBC a few years ago, where they posed eight radical solutions uh, to getting the housing... uh, solving the housing problem. And the things were, you know, five of the solutions out of those eight, I can read them, they were, ''Landlords uh, will be forced to sell on empty flats.'' ban second homes, elderly people will be forced to move out of their big homes, will curb population growth and will force people to live in ex- with extended families. So, you know, once you lose uh, a sense of vision, a sense of ambition, then you're kind of reduced into these, these fairly constrained uh, solutions which involve, you know, a quite authoritarian imposition of, of, you know, trying to organise the way that, that people live. So I think you know, the, the, there's a problem in the mainstream uh, debate, but I think there's also a problem in what purports to be the, the, the radical opposition, if, if, if you like, because just as the, uh, the mainstream is ground to a halt in terms of house building, the radical alternatives are often less than inspiring and, in fact, in many ways... Uh, I, I think, problematic. So it's, I, I don't just mean that in the sense of the, the kind of predictable, outraged response to, to Richard Holloway's tweet about growing up, and the, the kind of personalised volleys of abuse that he got, which kind of signalled, again, a kind of lack of seriousness, I think, in, 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 in the radical side of things. But uh, I, I mean more that there's... Um, you know, there's a lack of, I think, recognition of the need to develop, even amongst uh, the radical opponents of the mainstream. So Generation Rent's uh, pamphlet Rent's Too High released this week. You know, Dan, Diane Abbott has a bit of a cheap go, I think, in, in the opening uh, section at the super wealthy buying up all the flats. As, you know, so the, the people who buy flats get the blame uh, when, when the real problem is, I'd say, is, is, that, is that we're not actually building enough. Vice magazine a couple of weeks ago had a, had a, an article where it was describing the Foxtons, you know these little minis that drive around. They were saying these these are synonymous with gentrification, and therefore, and I quote, the vanguard of the housing crisis. So, so the you know the, the people who are selling homes and, and to some extent regenerating areas are credited with, as as the problem, and the same with uh, you know the AJ observer campaign against the, the, the skyline and building new towers. And all of these things, to some extent, help the, suffocate even further the kind of anti-development atmosphere, I think, that, that, that we live in today. So for me, the big thing is uh, we kind of need to have a serious discussion about how to build and a lot of it, a, a good starting point, will be to overcome uh, some of the, the mainstream but also the radical arguments which I think hold us back. Okay, brilliant. Thank you, Alistair.
1: Finally, on 8th of July, we hosted a question time-style debate honouring the 800th anniversary of the signing of the Magna Carta by asking a top panel to debate proposals sent in from the public for a 21st century equivalent. The panel featured the Kent Law Clinic's John Fitzpatrick, With an engaged audience braving the start of London's tube strike, the evening was an inspiring celebration of the importance of hard-won freedoms and a sophisticated dissection of the challenges posed by the contemporary human rights framework.
4: Um, I think Magna Carta is important today because it's about power and government. And I don't care how old it is, it's still about those things. And most importantly, not just about power and government, but it's about the fact that if we take our courage in our hands, we can get that power. We can be that government. We can control our lives. We can determine our futures. That's what they did. The most important clause of Magna Carta, for me, is Clause sixty-one. It isn't all about denial, delay, right or justice. It isn't about the judgment of your peers, elements of those around beforehand as it happens. But the most important clause is 61. And the, the core of that is... The barons may elect 25 barons of the kingdom, whom they choose, who with all their power shall observe and keep and cause to be observed the peace and liberties which I have granted to them. That was the most repugnant cause to the king because that was the 25 people who were given the enforcement power of all the articles of Magna Carta. He was the first he remained on. He was the first he, um, he, 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 he backed off. It was the moment at which the, uh, the executive power gave up to, to the barons, wasn't to the people, as, as has been said, but it was a moment that should never be forgotten. An inspiring moment that if you take your code in your hands and you do it, you can take the power and you can be part of that government. And all in history, 800 years later, we're talking about it because it's that good, it's that powerful as an inspiration. And if you look at the things that have come after it, let me go quickly through some other of my, my favourite top ten. I'm not, I'm not on for lists generally, you know, but the second one I pick out, the great moments, the great statements. 18, that was in 1215, Magna Carta. 1381, the Peasants' Revolt the mad priests of Kent, Jack Ball and Walt Tyler, the peasants recall, 1381, when Adam delved and Eve spanned, who was then the gentleman? That was a challenge that they put and they put it very toughly you know, to, to the leadership of the country at that time, they didn't succeed. And from 1381 to 1647, the levellers, an agreement of the people, an agreement of the people for a firm and present peace upon grounds of common right and freedom. In 1647, the Levellers, in the agreement of the people, set out a constitution which was entirely democratic, with even a mini bill of, bill of rights as well. You know, uh, uh, what, a, what a fantastic achievement! 1776. After that, the American, as has been said already, the, the American Declaration of Independence. You know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, and amongst these are liberty, justice, and, uh, and the pursuit of happiness. Throw in, throw in, common sense by Tom Paine earlier that year. We have it in our power to build the world again. 1776, the same day. The fifth one, 1789, the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. The Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen, 1789, following the French Revolution. Another fantastic statement, you know, from, from which we, from which we've not come back. Going to the, going to the next century, 1807, the abolition of the Abolition of the slave trade. You know, following on the slave revolts that had started in the French colonies, 1807. 1837. Go to the People's Charter, Echoing Magna Carta, 1837. The People's Charter of the Chartists, you know, standing up for the rights of all of which we've got today with respect to elections apart from annual parliaments in the 1837 People's Charter rights. And a, a, a fantastic thing. 1848 the Communist Manifesto following the revolutions in Europe of that year and of course the Communist Manifesto which was first published within almost, literally sitting distance of where you're sitting it was first published at 46 Liverpool Street the Manifest der Party, published in Germany forgive <laughs> my German it was published at, at, at that time and, uh, and, and the amazing, the amazing um, influence that has had since Um, 1916 the Proclamation of Independence of the Irish people in Dublin Irish men and Irish women etc 1928 Representation of the People's Act following the Women's Social and Political Union of 1903 fighting for the rights that they got in 1928 in every one of these examples the people were fighting for those statements, those achievements they didn't all succeed but some of them did and some of them um, uh, we we have the benefits today I've got to um, give you my my recommendation for a 21st century Magna Carta I think one thing, not five John just one thing for, for brevity I would like to see an end to all immigration controls be at the top of the 21st century Magna Carta why? because it's a right and just thing to do in principle there is no good principle for keeping people in another country from coming to this country or any other. There is no good principle for preventing the free movement of human beings around the world in the way that labour, in the way that capital and finance and goods and services can be moved around the world. But human beings cannot. It will be seen in time as as, as repugnant as slavery. So we do that. But all, if it takes time. It takes. I've got one minute. It, takes, it will take time. be difficult to achieve that's part of why it's such a great thing to have on a 21st century Magna Carta why it is so much in the spirit of those moments that I've quoted because it will challenge and unlock so much else that is wrong with the way in which we organise our economic and social and global life to get to the decent standard of all human beings being treated decently all human beings being given the status, the dignity, the respect that they're allowed to move around the world and pursue their determination and their freedom and their lives as they will. Saying that that is our goal, if we do that in the spirit of Magna Carta, we will also be in that process addressing the fundamental problems of, of, of global society today. Boop boop